Evening, little family. It'll come louder. Don't, don't tempt them, they pump, pump me up. A lot of you folk would have heard um, that, that very distressing thing that happened in our general area about two or three weeks ago. A young man in a wheelchair, three of his staff broke in on him, tortured him, I presume to get acquisition to the money and the safe and so on, burnt him and killed him. And a little while after that, it must have been about a week to ten days after that, I bumped into his brother-in-law in the mug and bean. And he was telling me about what had happened and the, the pain of it and the, the confusion of it and the emotion of it and the stress and the trauma of, of, of being engaged and involved in something like that. And then he asked me the question which I've heard countless times in my time of ministry. The question goes like this. But Chris, why does God allow this? Why didn't he intervene? What do you say? Our words seem so empty when we're confronted with the rawness of these things. Oh, it's easy to give trite answers and glib responses. But you can't sit down and kind of go through a whole theology. You have to speak into it with words of life. I found myself saying what I've said dozens and dozens of times in the past. The same thing. And the reason why I always have the same response to that question is because I truly believe it is the only answer to it. So the response is, I don't know why God did not intervene in this specific instance. But I do know that he has promised to walk with us through these terrible times. This I know. Just a little while ago as well in Orlando, that terrible, crazy slaughter of all those people. There must be dozens and dozens of families and friends who right today are asking that same question. But, oh God, why did you allow this? Why didn't you intervene? And if we're honest with ourselves, many times in the, in the darkest moments of our lives when we're facing deep and terrible things, we hear ourselves asking that same question. But, oh God, you know I love you. Why have you allowed this? Why did you not intervene? It's not just an academic exercise to try and answer that question. It's something which we fight with, which we wrestle with, which affects our lives. It's a real question that deserves a real answer. Did Jesus answer this question? I believe he did. Chapters 13 to 16 of John's Gospel record his last discourse with his disciples before he went to the cross. So before going to the cross, he gets them together and he's giving them his final teaching before he goes to this incredible period of suffering, right? And trauma and drama. And right at the end of it, in chapter 16, verse 33, right at the end of his discourse, he says the following words to them. And I'm going to read to you from the Holman's Christian Standard Bible. He said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. That's a 
powerful, powerful statement. And it breaks down into three component parts. And I want to change the order of them slightly as I open it up this evening. But part one is, you will have suffering in this world. Not maybe, not if, not perhaps. You will have suffering in this world. The second part was, be courageous. I have overcome the world. I've conquered the world. And the third part is, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Suffering. Why was Jesus so adamant and dogmatic on this? Why did he say, you will have suffering? Why is suffering the inevitable consequence of living on this planet? Because that's what he's saying, is he not? You will have suffering in this world. Suffering, trouble, trials, stress. Well, in John chapter 14, a few chapters before his final discourse, well, part of his final discourse actually, in verse 23, he says something that leads us to the answer. But I'm going to have to take you through it step by step and just follow the logical thread through it because it does point us to the answer to why is there suffering in the world. In John 14, 23, Jesus says this, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. The contrast here is between loving God and him being with us, and not loving God and him not being with us. There's a divide. But there's also part of what he's saying is the connection between love and obedience. He's saying, if you actually do love me, you will obey me. Think about that for a second. How, how can we human beings, how can we really express our love for God? Is it, is it okay just to say, oh God, I love you? And sing some songs? Or whatever. No, the ultimate expression, the true expression of our love to God is when we obey him. I love you, God, and I will show it through my obedience to you. For you are God, and you are worthy of my obedience and my love. So there's a connection here between obedience and love, and between God being with us, humanity, people, and not being. On the negative side of that, the logical conclusion is that separation from God yields suffering. Separation from God. Yield suffering. It is the very root cause of suffering in this world. Rebellion and disobedience against God. Love is an act of giving. We give our obedience. We give our worship and adoration. And God, in his act of love towards us, gives us, as human beings, the most three precious gifts imaginable. He gives us something of his own image. We made in his likeness. He gives us something of himself. Secondly, he gives to those who will believe in him, he gives eternal life. Life that transcends death, that goes on in his presence forever and forever. And thirdly, he gives us the ability to choose to love him and obey him. You know, there's no other creature than human beings on this planet that can do that. It is the distinctive of humanity. It's not our intelligence or our big brains and 
by imagination. It's the fact that we have been given the ability to love God and to obey Him. But humanity chose rebellion over obedience and chose defiance over dependence and chose separation from God over unity with Him. That was a choice. The story of Adam and Eve in Genesis is not just a nice fanciful myth for, for kiddies. It's an account of the creation of the human race. And every living, breathing person on this planet flows from that gene pool, flows from that creation event. And in him, humanity made this devastating decision. God, no, I will not love you. And I will not obey you. I will love myself and I will obey the voice of the devil. That's essentially what happened. And from that moment of defiance, the sin and the suffering has flown down the tree of humanity, not just to every living human, but to the whole of creation, groans and battles in chaos and disorder because of a separation from God through disobedience and a choosing not to love him. Romans 5 verse 12, Paul writes, Sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all men, because all sinned. Suffering is a result of this disorder. Suffering is a result of this chaos that the world is in. And it expresses itself in every imaginable negative way. From tsunamis to cancer patients, to the Orlando slaughter, to the murder of the man in the wheelchair. All of these are expressions of the gross disorder of our world. Because our world, and humanity in general, is in rebellion against God. Therefore separated from his love and his power and suffering is a consequence of that. But I can almost see the, the thought bubbles over some heads that contain a question that goes something like this. Yeah, Chris, I understand the theory of that. That's all well and good. But I'm suffering. Why doesn't God intervene when I suffer? Well, of course he does, you know. We call it answered prayer, don't we? What is answered prayer if it's not God intervening? When something happens, we cry out to him and we say, Oh Lord, please change this, right? And when he does, that's an answer to prayer. And so there's many, multiple times that God is intervening in small areas and wonderful areas in our lives. But in our heart of hearts, we know that God rarely intervenes dynamically and in a major way. It does happen. But it is rare. Why? Because extensive intervention requires extensive control. Again, think about this for a moment. If God were to intervene in all the tragedies of life, he would have to meticulously control the circumstances, the thought process, the actions of countless people in countless circumstances over countless timelines in order to bring about an intervention. And every time that that would happen, 
It is eroding and diminishing the gift that he's given to humanity, which is the ability to choose. The more meticulous control by God, the less we are able to express our obedience and love to him. The price is too high for intervention too often. Does God intervene in mighty ways though? Oh, you betcha. You betcha. What was the coming of the Son of God into this world? To live among us for 33 and a half years, to die on the cross of Calvary, to rise from the dead, and to ascend back into heaven if it wasn't the world's greatest intervention. It changed the course of human destiny. It changed this devastating bondage to this destructive, despicable grip of fear and rebellion and suffering. It changed that into the potential for life. For the first time, humanity could look up and say, someone has opened the door of the grave and has opened for me life. What an intervention. We could never say God does not intervene. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. Romans 5.15 For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? So sometimes God intervenes, and sometimes he doesn't. But please, Christian, please, fellow believer, remember, remember what I'm saying now. Remember this. When the times come as they do, when suffering strikes, as it will, and we cry out to God and there does not appear to be any intervention, when he, when, when he doesn't intervene, he doesn't change, immediately change our circumstances, remember this. God is good. God is love. And God is with us. For if you and I do not believe that, then we might as well be devil worshippers or atheists. Tell you. Remember, when the intervention doesn't come, you can trust him. He will walk with you through that. And it will be redemptive. From that will come life and fruit, and avenues, and open doors, and all sorts of things, for God is good. And he has promised that he will work all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Now, it's because God is good, and because he has intervened in human destiny in the Lord Jesus Christ, that Jesus can legitimately say to his disciples and to us, Take heart. I have overcome the world. I've overcome it. Death, where's your victory? Grave, where's your sting? Other way around. He's overcome it. And also, he's overcome the devastation of the destruction of suffering in this world. For in him, suffering can be redemptive. It can change us and the world around us for our good. Listen to what uh, Paul writes in Romans 8.18. The kind of words that you kind of wonder at when you read them for the first time or the tenth. He said, 
I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. And in 2 Corinthians 4.17, he says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Paul, what are you saying? Don't you know I'm suffering? What do you mean small? What do you mean fleeting? But Paul was the man who was stoned nearly to death a number of times. Run out of cities. Beaten. Lashed. Ostracized. Condemned. And who was going blind when he wrote this letter. He knew. You see, life is short. And yes, our suffering might seem so huge and overwhelming at the time. But it passes. Even as our life passes like a breath in the wind. And we move on to eternity. An eternity of glory. And more than that, suffering can, if we will accept it, be redemptive in our lives. What transforms us more into the image and likeness of Jesus than anything? Is it success? Is it money? Is it achievement? What is it? Suffering. Suffering has the potential of transforming us into the image of Jesus in this life. It doesn't destroy us if we are in Christ Jesus. It can build us and lead us through into glory. Okay, so first Jesus says, you will have suffering in this world. And secondly, he says, be courageous. I have conquered the world. But then thirdly, he says, I've told you these things so that in me, you may have peace. We are, are in this world, aren't we? We're in this world of suffering. But in the midst of this world, we are in Christ Jesus. Everyone who is born again of the Holy Spirit, everyone who has surrendered to Jesus and said, Lord, I want to follow you through the grave and beyond. Lead me, Lord. Give me new life. We're in Christ Jesus within a suffering world. He said, I've told you these things. And when he spoke about those things, he was talking about his whole address to them, which is recorded in those chapters 13 to 16. So very briefly this evening, I want to quickly unpack those five things that define what it is to be in Christ Jesus. What is it practically to be in him and thus have his peace in him? The first is found in John 14 verses 6 to 9, where he talks about how he and the Father are one. And then he talks about how he is the only way to salvation. He's essentially saying this. Guys, the foundation of your belief, the foundation of your peace, the foundation of being in me is to be born again in the Spirit so that we and the Father can have unity and I am the only one through whom you can come. It starts there. It's no good talking to the unbeliever about peace because peace is in Christ Jesus. It starts by being in Christ Jesus, being in his love, being in an obedient relationship with him. The second is found in John 15 verses 1 through 17, that incredible, wonderful analogy of the vine and the branches. In short, it says this, Jesus says, I'm, I'm like a vine 
And you are the branches and the tendrils that are all part of this vine and attached to it. And my life flows through you like the sap flows through a vine, producing wonderful fruit through your lives. I am in you. You are in me. And you're in each other. You're all attached to this vine. And it's a spreading vine that has covered the whole earth. We don't call it a vine anymore. We call it the church. To be in Christ Jesus within this world of suffering is to be in his body. Be in relationship with each other within the living, pulsing vine. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the third comes John, from John 13 verse 15 and verses 34 to 35. This is where he takes off his outer garments, he takes a bowl and a towel, and he washes his disciples' feet. And then after that, he basically says to them, now go and do this to each other. I've set you this example. Within the context of the church, being in Christ Jesus also means living to serve each other. Living to serve each other. Humbly. With loving hearts. Now do you know that at the times of greatest suffering, some of the greatest peace and release comes when we take our eyes off our problem and we start to minister to other people. It's at that point that suddenly we get perspective and peace returns into our hearts. By the way, P.S. Jesus gave this as the def definitive sign that we are disciples of his. He said, By this people, the world, will know that you are my disciples if you have love for each other. Conversely, when they see the body of Christ at odds and fighting and backbiting and skinnering and squandering and going all sorts of tequera, then the world knows, nah, they're not disciples. By this will all men know. Fourthly, it's found in John 14 verses 15 to 16 and chapter 16 verses 1 to 16. He tells them and us that he'll send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will be the source of our peace and the source of our power, the source of our direction and the source of our instruction, the source of our intercession and the source of our comfort. That we're not orphans, we're not alone. Within the body of Christ, within our unity with him and each other, he empowers us and fills us so that we can overflow with peace and joy in the, in the Holy Spirit and go out into a suffering world to offer life and peace. And the last is found in John 14, verses 1 to 4, where he says, And it doesn't stop here, my sons, my daughters, for I go to prepare a place for you. Oh, in heaven, there's plenty of room for you. And I'm going to make sure you have a wonderful welcome. Being in Christ is to be in obedient relationship with him, to be in relationship with him, the vine, the church, and the people, to serve each other with joy and love, to be this great example of obedience and trust and love to others, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and to know that ultimately our peace will continue forever. For this world is short, like a candle, like smoke, like mist in the morning, like a breath in the wind. I said to the grieving man in the mug and bean, when the question was asked, 
why did God allow this, Chris? Why didn't he intervene? The only answer I had and have is I do not know why he didn't intervene in this specific instance. But I do know that he has promised to be with us through these times, to walk with us. I think Jesus would have added something more. I think he would have said, my son, you will have suffering in this world, but be of good heart, for I have overcome this world. Amen.